Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 7 this morning. And last week, in our study of John chapter 6, it's John chapter 6, we asked the question, what is the greatest need of the human soul? Is the greatest need of the human soul for something or is it for someone? You might remember that from last week. And we saw this question being clearly addressed in the question and answer exchanges between Jesus and the crowd and also in Jesus' teaching that followed when he said shocking things. Like whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Of course, the reason why Jesus spoke in that way was because these people were stuck in a pattern of worship whereby they were continuously trying to get things they wanted from a God they didn't. And so Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, really ramming it home, you don't need something from me, you need me. They loved the things that they imagined God had in his power to bestow, but they had no particular regard for God in his person. So all of their supposed worship was really not an expression of God's worth to them, as it should be. That's what our English word worship means. It comes from the old English, worship, which means worthship. It's the visible expression that something invisible takes. Like if I say, the thing I enjoy with you is a friendship. All those intangible qualities that make you a friend become visible in you. And so the worship, the worship that we offer God are those ways that we in our life demonstrate outwardly the inner reality of his worth to us. And so all of their supposed worship, and we put air quotes around that, was really not an expression of God's worth to them, but rather an expression of how much they were willing to pay to get something they wanted from the God that they didn't. This is what it was expressing. And so Jesus, God in the flesh, aggressively pushes back against this well-worn path in their way of thinking and relating to him. I think most people are creatures of habit somewhat. In our minds, people tend to have these well-worn paths, these predictable channels of thought. And this is true to varying degrees. Some people are more surprising than, than somebody like me. But I tend to wear the same kinds of clothes, eat the same kinds of food. I watch the same kind of TV shows. When my clothes wear out, I go and buy ones that look almost exactly like the ones that wore out. And it just goes on and on and on like this. I am a guy who travels in well-worn paths, ruts, predictable channels. And I think most people, to some degree or, or, or less, are like that. All paths should have a destination. But these people to whom Jesus was addressing in John 6, the paths that crisscrossed their minds ran in a loop, doubling back and covering the same ground over and over again without ever going anywhere or accomplishing anything. Paths which should have served to access the marvelous things of God had become an end to themselves, a mind-numbing and tedious loop that began and ended with them. It was an old path of lust, fear, and longing, 
And it was going to take something wildly unexpected, something totally out of left field, to chase them off of those established paths and into the woods. And so Jesus shows up, and he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's really jarring them. He's trying to shove them off of these well-worn paths in their mind. He said new things. He did things that were unprecedented. And I think it's kind of fun to watch as we read the Bible how people responded to the wild newness of Jesus. Some people think it's the coolest thing they've ever seen. They're sick and tired of the old rut. They are feeling burdened with how mind-numbingly tedious and ineffectual all this is, and there's no hope in any of it. And then along comes Jesus, and they just go, what a breath of fresh air. Others seem to feel threatened or jealous. They like the predictability, the patterns, the ways that they understand things. And Jesus comes and threatens that. Others just seem gobsmacked and puzzled by the whole thing. So much of the book of John has been devoted to chronicling those moments when people encounter Jesus along the established path of their own experience, their own ways of thinking, and suddenly find themselves off the path with Jesus, trying to get their bearings in the wild newness of God and the gospel. I'm thinking of moments like when Nicodemus is wrestling with the thought that he has to be born again. This is a new This is an invitation to step off the path. I'm thinking of the woman at the well coming to the realization that she, a woman of well-worn patterns of sin, who everyone else avoided, has been sought out by God himself saying that he wants to show her grace and mercy. I'm thinking of Nathaniel when Jesus said, before, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. New stuff unprecedented. I love these moments, and I think John, the human author of this book, also takes special delight in them. These moments where the established precedent of all that has come before and all the unexamined assumptions that go with that are turned on their head by the new thing God was doing. He documents for us their grumbling, their questions, their death threats, their troubled inner turmoil at the things Jesus said and did. Nicodemus asks, how can I re-enter my mother's womb to be born again? Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in the text we studied last week, when Jesus made the claim that he came down from heaven, the people grumbled and asked one another, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? These are all people who have been traveling the same patterns of thinking for a very, very long time, being confronted with a new idea, and they have questions. They're not sure what to make of this. And this is the moment, I think, that John, better than any of the other gospel writers, documents for us. In all of this, John is highlighting the tension that exists when Jesus begins confronting and confounding the established expectations of the people he encounters. Brothers and sisters, if you like your life the way it is, don't read the Bible. Don't seek out Jesus. This is a lesson even for those who are long established in the faith. 
If you like things just exactly the way it is, don't, don't ask Jesus' opinion. Don't seek him out. Because he has this way of confounding and confronting. He tends to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. But we're always leaving Jesus changed, challenged, prodded off into a direction that we wouldn't have gone if we were left to our own devices. And this brings us to our text for this morning. I think there were few people at that time who had as settled an opinion about Jesus as did his family. One of those things I wish the Bible told us more about was Jesus' relationship with his biological family. The Bible gives us everything we need to know, but not everything we'd like to know. It's designed to satisfy our souls, not our curiosity. Some of the people in the crowd in John 6 knew much more about Jesus' family than we do. They say in verse 41 that they know and are familiar with the family, but the Bible gives us very few glimpses into their family life. We don't know much about if Jesus had a favorite brother. (laughs) We don't know if they liked playing sports together. We don't know what their holiday observances were like very much. We don't know much about the dynamic that existed in Jesus' family of origin. Joseph is mentioned in the Christmas story, but by the time Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he's not mentioned at all, and we presume he died at some point, but we don't know that story, and I'd like to know it. I'm curious. However, in our text for this morning, John shares, us, shares with us a rare account, an exchange between Jesus and his biological brothers. According to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus had four brothers, And he also had sisters, were never given the names of the sisters or their exact number. But there were apparently more than one of them, so we're safe in saying at least two. So it appears that a Jesus had, at a minimum, six siblings who had been born to Mary and Joseph. Four brothers and at least two sisters. And I think one of the reasons why we find so little information about Jesus' family in the Bible is because of the primary importance that the Bible places on being a brother of Christ in the spiritual sense, over and against the importance of familial bonds. Uh, consistently, throughout our New Testaments, the Bible downplays the importance of being blood-related to anything, <laughs> Right? Uh, Paul famously in Romans 9 says not, at, not all children of Abraham are children of God. In other words, that thing that you have placed so much importance on, your blood relationship to the descent of Abraham, doesn't really matter in your standing with God. You can become a children of God. You can, become, you can enter the family of faith, but that's done by faith, not by blood descent. This is a common theme in the Bible, but Jesus himself had the most pointed things to say on this topic. In Mark 3, Jesus is teaching inside a house, and the place is just packed. People are spilling out of the house into the street, so much so that when his family comes looking for him, they can't get Jesus' attention. So in Mark 3, we, we read this, And his mother and his brothers came, And standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Hey, Jesus, (laughs) your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I don't think in this moment Jesus is intending to cheapen the unique bond that exists between a mother and her child or between siblings. I think what he is trying to do is elevating the bond that in our minds, the bond that comes through obedience to the commands of Jesus. From Jesus' perspective, the ties that bind the body of Christ together are stronger more permanent and indissoluble even than blood. He's not saying the relationship between ma, a mom and her child is a cheap, unsubstantial thing at all. He's saying that's probably the closest bond you can imagine, and I want you to think higher than that. In other words, he's saying this is an established path in the minds of most people. And here he is again confronting us along those paths that the highest thing, the most important relationships is family. And Jesus says, yes, but who is your true family, your eternal family? What is the deepest bond that it can, can exist between human beings? And he's not saying look poorly on your biological relationships as though they were a shabby, cheap thing. He's saying elevate this other thing in your mind, even above that good thing. Jesus loves to do this. He speaks in a very provocative fashion about this. Another place, in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And again, Jesus' intention here is not to say, you should love your children less, <laughs> or you should love your mom and dad less. He's saying, he's trying to elevate in our thinking the place he should hold in our hearts. And in fact, we love our children best when we love God most. Isn't that true? I'm often grateful that Sarah loves God more than me. I think that part of what makes her a great wife is that she loves me best when she loves God most. And I think that in most of our relationships, it is this way. I think another reason why we don't get these glimpses into Jesus' family life is like a tabloid promising a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the life of the royal family. Any passage that offered an expose into the home life of Jesus' family would threaten to hold a place in our interest that would be outsized to its importance. It would likely capture the interests of some more than what God wants us to celebrate and enjoy and think deeply about which is our own adoption into the family of Christ. It's not like these guys were really Jesus' brothers and we're just make-believe brothers and sisters. No, it's really almost the other way around. They had a lesser claim on Jesus. Amazingly, the Bible makes it plain that we have a greater claim on Jesus and a deeper bond with him than many of his own blood relations who never came to a place of believing faith. Yet still, here in the opening verse of John 7, we do get one of these rare glimpses. We see him in dialogue with his siblings, his biological siblings. And it's kind of cool. And it's interesting. So here we are. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, 
he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And again, I always feel the need to mention this, but when the Bible says Jews, they're not speaking about people who are ethnically Jewish. This is kind of shorthand for the Jewish religious authority, the Pharisees. And then in verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, which is one of the most interesting verses in the whole exchange. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, most of us are not familiar with the Festival of Booths, or sometimes it's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, but this is uh, basically celebrated for a span of about one week in the fall of the year, in September or October. And it was a, it was a dual celebration at the a festival of booths, they were going to celebrate the harvest. This is primarily an agricultural society. So the harvest is in, and this is really like their kind of thanksgiving. It's also a time when they celebrate as a people in their national memory that time of desert wandering, where they lived in tents. And so in what I think is one of the coolest holiday traditions I've ever heard of, the whole family would build this temporary shelter for the week out of sticks and branches and they would live in it for a week they'd go up to Jerusalem they'd build a temporary shelter and they would live in it now can you imagine your kids being into that I can every year we'd go up and mom and dad were there and we would chop down branches and we'd build this kind of makeshift shelter and live in it for a week it's like camping out it sounds like a lot of fun as I was researching the festival of booths this week I just kept going why don't we do this? <laughs> this would be so awesome. But the big thing is that every male was required to attend at least during one day during the festival in Jerusalem. It was a large national gathering. Everybody was going to be there. And we know, now we know, um, because we know the rest of the book, that in time, some of Jesus' brothers would go on to become Jesus' followers. Uh, this is most famously true of his little brother James, who would become in time head of the church in Jerusalem, and he gives us the book of James in our New Testament. However, as verse 5 says, at this early date, they do not believe in Jesus. And that's a strange thing to read because verses 3 and 4 would seem to demonstrate the opposite. They have been seeing Jesus' works, his miracles, and they're amazed like everyone else. And so having seen these works, these miraculous things that Jesus is doing, they come to him and they encourage him to seek a larger audience. Jesus, this thing's going on at Jerusalem why aren't you there? I mean, this is your big chance. This is where all the crowds are. 
Take your little song and dance routine up there and amaze all those people. So they encourage him to seek a larger audience so that he can gain a larger following. And having heard that, we would think, well, these guys believe. But it's strange then that what follows is the verse that says they did not believe in him. Now that surprises us a little bit, at least it surprises me. Jesus' own brothers, who knew him as well as could possibly be known, in fact, as a poor Judean family, they probably slept all together in the same bed. They had grown up together in close quarters. Surely they knew him and they had seen it. How is it possible to believe in Jesus' abilities but not in Jesus? You would think that the signs would naturally lead to belief in all that they signify. But this is a strange species of unbelief that we see in Jesus' brothers. I say it's strange, but it's not unique to them. We have other examples of this phenomenon in the Bible, where people possess belief in Jesus' abilities, but not belief in him as Lord. For example, what about Judas? What is his motivation in following Jesus? Does he think something extraordinary is happening with Jesus? Has he had a first seat view of all these works that Jesus has done? He absolutely has. He's seen it. And he believes, but not in Jesus. We were just told in the previous chapter, verse 64 of chapter 6, that Judas did not believe in Jesus. And this even though he has seen all that he has seen. And he has had unparalleled access to Jesus. Another example that comes to mind is the thief on the cross. You remember the account Jesus is being crucified and to his right and to his left are two other people who are also being crucified, both of them thieves. And in Luke 23, 39, one of the thieves cries out to him and says, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's a strange species of belief right there. This guy knew about Jesus and some of what he had done, what he was capable of. And he says, aren't you that guy? Save yourself and me too. (laughs) This man might have even believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the king of the Jews, but really he'll take anybody as king who can get him down off that cross. This is emblematic of how one whole group of human beings relates to Jesus. There is something that Jesus' brothers and Judas and the thief on the cross all have in common. They wanted something from him. Jesus' brothers wanted notoriety. Far from being jealous of Jesus like others were, they wanted some residual benefit from their relationship to the great man Jesus, his rising star. Maybe they could bask in the light of his fame as well. Put yourself in his shoes. We all live here in Aroostook County, which I don't think is that dissimilar from Judea, (laughs) in that everybody knows each other, right? When Jesus is talking to this crowd in John chapter 6, they said, hey, we know his mom and dad's name. Didn't he grow up in limestone? (laughs) That's essentially what happens in that passage. 
They know each other. And just imagine, put yourself in his brother's shoes, right? They're out at Tim Hortons getting a cup of coffee. Up comes somebody else and says, hey, I've been hearing some crazy stuff about your brother. Yeah, local boy made good. <laughs> I'll put in a word for you. Yeah, okay. It's that kind of thing. You know, I hear he's healing people. Did you hear my cousin is sick? Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, uh, maybe you could talk to Jesus about that. I'll see. All of a sudden, they're a go-between. They're the access point to the great man, Jesus. Jesus, you should go up to Jerusalem. You should see how big a following you can get. Now, those kind of connect-the-dot things are not spelled out for us explicitly. I'm going out on a risky limb by insinuating that some of that is present in what's happening here, but I see that as a possible motivation in their desire for Jesus to seek out a larger audience. What possible reason would they have if they don't believe in him? Well, they believe in his power to create some benefit for them. I think that's probably present. Last week, we saw Jesus rebuke the people who were following him, not because they saw the signs, but because they ate their fill of the loaves. And this is essentially the same spirit that we see in Jesus' brothers, who, I believe, again, are encouraging him to do these things so that there might be some benefit for them. To all these people, Jesus is their golden ticket. He's useful to them, but he is not their Lord. This is the dynamic Jesus is useful, not Lord. They are their own masters. They serve themselves. And Jesus is a useful person in service to their plans, their desires, their ambitions. You see, Jesus' brothers viewed themselves as the main characters, and Jesus was actually supporting caste in their way of thinking. I think this is what Jesus means when he tells them my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What does that mean? Jesus always speaks in this way where you can't just listen to him. You have to stop and think, <laughs> right? You can't just, everything he's saying doesn't instantly click. You have to think about it and get to the bottom of what he's saying. What does Jesus mean when he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here? Well, they want him to go up to Jerusalem, and his answer here is actually very similar to what Jesus has to say to his mother at the wedding in Cana. Remember, she comes to Jesus and says, uh, they don't have wine. This is a huge, embarrassing mistake. Maybe you can do something to fix it. And his answer is, my time has not yet come. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, he's thinking ahead to his crucifixion. We talked about that last October. Uh, I'm sure you guys have that sermon memorized, don't you? So I don't have to revisit the whole thing. <laughs> But here he's saying something very similar. But part of what he's saying is this. I think Jesus, as the perfectly sinless man, is submitting to the will of the Father perfectly. Perfectly. So he says that, in, that his time is not his own. He's like a soldier under orders. He can't just go wherever he wants, whenever he wants. He has to wait for the command because he is submitting to the will of another. He seeks not his will, but the will of his Father. He seeks not his glory, but the glory of the Father. And so he awaits the fullness of time when the Father will lead him to Jerusalem. Jesus often makes statements like this. 
For example, last week we read, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or in John 5, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is perfectly submitted to the will of the Father, so his time has not yet come because he has not yet gotten the direction to go. He's going to go to Jerusalem at the direction of the Father, not the urging of his brothers. However, he says of his unbelieving brothers that their time is always here. What does he mean by that? Well, he obviously means, I think, He's charging them with serving their own ambitions and seeking their own glory. They have no other master than themselves. They're not submitted to the will of anyone above them. They do what they want when they want because they are lords over their own lives. Jesus says, my time has not yet come because I'm waiting on one who is above me. But your time's always here. You can just go do whatever you want. They don't seek anybody's will but their own. These brothers of Jesus have no Lord whose glory they seek above their own and whose will governs them. Their time is always here because they serve at their own pleasure. What about us? What about me? However, before we tut-tut these lesser sons of Mary too much, Let's recognize that this tendency to view Jesus as useful rather than Lord is never far from any of us. I think quite often when tragedy and suffering enter our lives, people will think, I'll try God. If you're king, if you really are who you say you are, get me out of this mess. We pray fervently when we're in a crisis but rarely seek God when things are calm again. How does this betray anything but the fact that God to us is useful, but not Lord? He's not somebody who is a constant presence relationally in our lives. He's somebody we seek out when we need him, and we put him away again when we don't. A crisis enters our lives, and all of a sudden we're prayer warriors. It passes And so too does God's importance to us. God, in this scenario, is just a support for our idolatrous love of the world. But in the midst of suffering, if he fails to deliver and fix what's broken to our satisfaction, then honestly we have no use for him. That's how the first thief looks on Jesus. He's a tool. This is a small, shabby way of looking on Jesus, but it is terribly, terribly common. If you're such a good God, deliver me from this disease. Get me out of this financial mess, this job, this marriage. Take away the hurt. Don't let my loved one die. What I want, what I really, really want, is for you to get me down off this cross. And I think this is the way so many relate to God. They love the things he has in his power to bestow. But he's just the one you have to do business with. And honestly, if something else could come along to fix it, you might let go of him. 
If I'm in a financial mess, and I'm in a place of crisis, and I'm crying out to God, and then somebody comes up to me and says, I can help you with that. All of a sudden, that's the person I love. (laughs) That's the person I'm pursuing. That's the person I'm talking to. That's how these people think. And it's challenging to me in my heart. Because yes, Jesus is absolutely what we pin all our hopes to. We need him. He has everything that we need. But do I love him? I think this is the challenge. They see Jesus' abilities and they love it. But they don't love him. He's useful. He's not Lord. And this is not Christianity. But there's a hopeful truth in all this. James. James, presumably, he's the oldest of these brothers. He's always listed first when the brothers are mentioned. He's one of these guys who views Jesus as a meal ticket in John chapter 7. He does. He's one of them. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he believes in what Jesus can do. But James did not stay stuck in this well-worn rut of looking on Jesus as useful but not Lord. He does not stay there. I think sometimes the patterns in our lives, patterns in our thinkings are so established, so deeply established that we despair of ever breaking out of them into new ways of thinking, new ways of living and doing. But the Bible is not a book of hopeless despair. It is a book full of hopeful stories of radical transformation and James is one of them. Have you ever read how James begins his book in the book of James? The very first words by way of introductions, James says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He's not name dropping. He's not saying, I'm a somebody because I'm Jesus' brother. In fact, he never mentions it anywhere in the book. Never once. How does James introduce himself to us? Well, he could have introduced himself by mentioning the interesting and noteworthy fact that he's Jesus' brother. Unlike the rest of you chumps, I'm actually biologically related to the Lord. (laughs) He never says that. Or he could have invoked his impressive credentials as leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the largest church in that time, arguably the most influential church leader, maybe even more than Peter. I say that with some proof. In Galatians 2, a delegation comes to Galatia, and they come at the, as representative of James, and it says Peter is afraid of them. Peter is afraid of the group in Jerusalem. I don't think he had anything to fear from James. It's all in his own mind. He fears their opinion. And he does some disastrous things. You can look up that story. But all that to say is I think James is arguably one of the most powerful church leaders in this time. Never mentions it. How does he want you to think of him? He says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord. I'm like you, a fellow laborer. We're all at the same level on the org chart, (laughs) lower than Jesus. 
which by the way is an amazing thing for a sibling to say, right? If you have siblings, how would you like to write the letter saying, I'm a servant of my brother? <laughs> but he does it and he loves it. All things that we glean, glean about G- James from what others have written about him are these. He is an impressive writer, church leader. He sacrifices greatly. He is a biological brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the true, true church in Jerusalem. But when he introduces himself, that's how he does it. This is a huge turnaround from the James we first meet in John chapter 7 where he is just trying to trade in Jesus' fame for a little bit of the same. And that's a very hopeful thing. And it's hopeful to you this morning if at any point over the course of this message, Jesus has, the Lord has confronted you through the Holy Spirit that you have strayed into patterns of looking on him as useful, not as Lord. That he's somebody who can serve your plans, your desires, your quest for comfort, rather than somebody who exists for you to find those things in. And so this week, if that's at all you, I don't have anything to say as far as a formula to get right except to draw before God and confess it. Just say what's needed here is a relationship. And so I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to confess to you that this is what's going on in my heart. St. Augustine famously said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And I think one of the things we can do in this moment when we see the patterns that exist in our way of thinking, when Jesus again from the pages of Scripture has confronted even us with those well-worn, tired ruts, those predictable channels, is we can say, Lord, carve new paths. (laughs) Make me right. I want to be more truly in and uh, honestly in relationship with you. I want you to be Lord. I'm sorry for relating to you as just useful. And you can do that this week. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do love you and I'm so grateful for you. I'm thankful for the way that you patiently pursue us. God, there are so many times where I'm reading through your word and you confront me in some worn-out rut of error that I have been living in. And Father, I just thank you, Lord, for my sense that you've done it again this morning. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us out of your word. You are good. We need you. We love you. We enjoy you. God, I like who you are. I love who you are, and I want to be more like you. Father, I pray that you would continue to be patient with us, remembering that we're made out of dust. Continue to pursue us, Lord, we pray. And draw us more and more into a deepening relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.